Hey, what's up, everyone? It's an uh, unusual day for the live chat because we did a live chat yesterday. My name is Luke Thomas. Welcome. This is the promotional practice live chat day two. Uh, we did one yesterday. We're going to do one today, and we're going to do one tomorrow. Now, a little bit different today. Normally, we go 90 minutes. Today, we're just going to go 60. So just one hour today, not a whole hell of a lot. Um, but the good news is we did 90 minutes yesterday. We'll do 60 today and then 60 tomorrow. So, you know, almost three hours. No, excuse me, more than that. Almost four hours, I should say, of uh, live chat action this week. That is plenty uh, for you to uh, sink your teeth into. Uh, today on the podcast, of course, it's going to be your questions and comments. That'll be on MMAfighting.com. The ones that turn green get priority, but on exclusivity. Um, I'll also check questions on social media. So the best place to do that, of course, is on Twitter. You can tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas and then uh, use the hashtag chat rappers. Best place to do that, of course, um, for social media anyway. So uh, what happened yesterday? Boy, it was a fun little day, wasn't it? Um, and there wasn't even any fights. So we had, God, it's all even a blur and it's already only Thursday already. Um, we had the weigh-ins yesterday for tonight's fights. Everyone looked shredded. Um, the fight card came out for the Ultimate Fighter 22. Uh, locally here, Ryan Hall is going to be fighting uh, Artem Lobov. Uh, it looks like in the co-main event, but we'll see how that ends up going um, for tomorrow's Ultimate Fighter Finale 22. Uh, let's see, what else? A bunch of stuff happened. Uh, Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor had a weird press conference where, bizarrely, Jose Aldo had outdressed Conor McGregor. That's unusual, um, to put it mildly. But in any case, there's a lot going on. The fights haven't even really started yet. Uh, and the questions and the comments are still pouring in like crazy. So without further ado, let me say thank you for watching yesterday. Um, and you notice I got the podcast up as quick as I possibly could. I'm going to do the same thing today. Um, so after this is over, you know, check iTunes.com slash promotional practice. Or, of course, we're on Twitter as well. Excuse me, uh, SoundCloud. I think it's SoundCloud.com slash the Luke Thomas, but I can't be certain about that. All right. So. Uh, and of course, customarily, we always show what diet soda I'm drinking. Nothing has changed. It's still good old diet. I need to keep it, you know, consistent with as much, um, you know, work that's going on that, you know, I gotta, gotta stay focused, gotta stay on top of things. You're not going to care so much about this, but I've been out of the military now 10 years. And I have to say I was in the Marine Corps. Um, and I was in an artillery unit. I was on the hill doing call for fire missions. Um, I have to say, the entire time I was in the Marine Corps, I didn't mind PT. In fact, I had PT in the afternoon is like awesome. Um, I had a first class PFT. I don't know if I would still have a first class PFT, but I did at the time. Um, but I always hated, I mean truly hated, running in the morning. When I say the morning, I don't mean like 9 a.m. I mean 5 a.m. I'll never forget being in formation at 4.30 in the morning, 4.45 in the morning at uh, 29 Palms and having to run. And I hated every second of it. I was just like, this is not productive for me. Uh, this is not the best way for me to get in shape. And you want, you know, you want us to get and stay in shape. Believe me, I'm down. I just don't want to do it this hour. And then now I find myself uh, running at 7 in the morning this morning. Not quite 5, but pretty damn early. And you know what? I actually enjoyed it. Um, back held up. It was great. And I just realized I joined the military way too early. <laughs> I was just not, <laughs> pardon me, mature enough to really appreciate uh, 
the way they do things. I know you don't care about that, but I thought I would just share that for no reason. And look at that. First question, Semper Fi. Uh, all right. I've seen a few UFC videos of fighters training with Marines. While you were in, this is crazy. Uh, while you were in boot camp, did they teach you any types of mixed martial arts, wrestling, or jiu-jitsu? If not, what type of, types of combat do, do they teach? I don't know what they're doing now, but they did something when I was in there called McMap, uh, Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. Um, there's various belts. I mean, it's a green, which is not very high. It's not very low, but it's not very high. Um, if you're green, you're, you know, I don't know, somewhere between white and blue belt or something. But, you know, it's a little bit different. It's more tactical. Um, it's not exactly designed for, you know, sport jujitsu. But in any case, um, the training was pretty intense. When I was at boot camp, um, they didn't even have McMap there. That was I went to boot camp in uh, June of 98. God damn, it's been a long time. Um, I had gotten there when they had just outlawed uh, boxing. So what had happened was in the Marine Corps, it, and I think they may have even brought it back, but I know back in the day when I joined, um, and I had joined in 97, but I was still in high school, so I had to finish that, went to boot camp, and literally the day I graduated boot camp, I drove to college. So I did everything at the same time. But I remember um, they had just outlawed it because the way it worked was they would put you in this tiny little boxing ring it would give you, I think, a mouthpiece, headgear, and gloves. And uh, basically, first clean shot to the head wins. I don't know what kind of training they even provided. Anyway, some dude didn't disclose some kind of medical condition, found a way to sneak through, took a shot to the dome, and died. And at that point, they basically outlawed it. Now, they still did other things where you got your bell rung, um, which I know is sort of like a euphemism for a concussion. They would give you these giant gladiatorial Q-tip sticks, uh, like, a, like a flak jacket, and then like a like a hockey goalie mask, and it was again same thing. First clean shot to the head wins. And I remember one time I got beat, but I didn't get hurt. And then one time there was like a bit of a weight mismatch, and I laid this dude out cold. Uh, so I don't know how that was any better. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know they're, they're trying to figure things out with concussions back then too. Anyway, so any kind of martial arts training I didn't do until. Uh, well, I think, I, you know, I was a corporal by the time we had even started anything. Let me just say something real quick. You know, I love the Marine Corps more than anything. But if I'm just being honest, the Army combatives um, system really is just vastly superior. The, the Marine Corps martial arts program is good enough where if you get to their version of black belt, you know, you've got a little bit in your back pocket. But those guys aren't very good either. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying it's not, it's, it's worthless. I'm just saying, you know, if you're, if you're accustomed to seeing the level of, you know, elite MMA or even, you know, so your regular old black belt in a gym, the Marine Corps martial arts program black belt guy is, is a pimple on the ass of him. You know, it's nothing even approximating the same thing. They would get washed by most blue belts, I, I feel like. But um, there is some value to it. A lot of it is designed for the combat gear itself. It does involve using some of the rifle. It does involve using your belt, shoelaces, that kind of thing. So it's a little bit different. Anyway, long story short, um, there's your answer. All right. Fantasy matchup. Jose Aldo versus Habib Nurmagomedov. Oof, that's interesting. Luke, you have mentioned on numerous occasions that a physically healthy Habib would have the capability to beat every fighter in his weight class. What happens when he's matched up against the man who's considered to be the number one pound-for-pound best fighter in the world? Well, first of all, that's John Jones. But, okay, to your point. It has long been speculated that Jose Aldo would eventually move to lightweight in the future, as the weight cut to get down to featherweight has had a negative impact on his body for some time now. 
that's the case, and it's safe to say the matchup between Aldo and Habib is well within the realm of possibility. On the one hand, you have Nurmagomedov, a smothering grappler with arguably the best takedown ability in MMA. I don't think it's even arguable. I think full full stop, he's the best in MMA. And on other guys, you have, uh, excuse me, and on the other hand, you have Jose Aldo, an elite striker with arguably the best takedown defense in MMA. A match between the two would present an intriguing clash of styles. Both fighters excel tremendously at their own respective discipline. Aldo moved to lightweight and maintained the effectiveness he had at featherweight. Who would you pick to win this classic five-round striker versus grappler battle? Wow, great question. Not something I've even really given a whole lot of thought to. First of all, let's see how Aldo looks uh, on Saturday, but okay. Um, Okay, long story short, um, the major knock to me on, I don't want to like too broadly paint this picture, um, but what I will say is a lot of the guys who come from Sambo, and therefore a lot of the Dagestanis, now again, not all of them, I don't want to be too, again, you don't want to say, oh, all the Dagestanis who come from Sambo, I don't want to say that, but what I will say is, you know, there does seem to be... um, distance closing is a bit of a problem for them. They do a lot of blitzing in there to get into where they want to go. They fire a big overhand or they fire a two punch combination. Really no, I can't, I mean, maybe they fire a three punch if they have to. It's really about what's the minimal amount of big punches I can use to disguise an entry. Now recall, they have so many entries that it's ridiculous. I don't mean through the variety of striking. What I mean is, if you're Clay Guida, for example, you got to do something because you're going to probably shoot, right? Um, because that's where your takedowns lie, in leg and hip attacks. You'll recall that the Sambo guys, at least especially in the case of Habib Nurmagomedov, who has, he can change levels and shoot on you if he wants to. He can do a sweep single, pick up double, high crotch, whatever he wants. He can do Harai Goshi. He can do Uchimata. He just needs an underhook. That's all you got to give him, man. All, all Habib Nurmagomedov needs is an underhook. Now, to get an underhook, you got to be in super close quarters. All I'm trying to point out to you is it's a little bit harder, even with his simplistic approach to distance closing. And when I say simplistic, I mean relative to the top standard. You know, relative to you and me, he would you know bomb on us. But okay, relative to the top standard, it's a little bit. It's a little bit simplistic. It's a little bit. Um, it's a little bit easy to measure uh, if you're someone like Jose Aldo. You know. Um, you, know, you saw what happened to Islam Makachev. Now, that was a little bit different because that was in space, but a lot of these guys, they like to pressure, these Sambo guys, they like to pressure, and then they try to close the distance a little bit, and they, they struggle with it, you know? And I think Rusam Habalov struggles with it a little bit as well. Um, I don't, I, I'm guessing it comes from Sambo. In what specific way, I can't really tell you. I don't know enough about Sambo um, to, you know, to make that generalization. I can just tell you when it comes to MMA, you just see enough of it to go, hmm, something's there a little bit. So to your, to your question, um, if Aldo could time him coming in, and if Aldo still had some speed, we know he's explosive, well, he he would cause some problems for Nurmagomedov there. But let me just say this. If Nurmagomedov was able to consistently find a way to pressure Jose Aldo against the fence, which we'll see if Conor McGregor can do, and if he was able to get an underhook or a hands together in some capacity around the waist, around the shoulder and armpit and neck, around one leg, I think Jose Aldo would be in trouble. I don't think I don't think anyone 155 and down, if he can get your hands on you, can resist him. Because remember, Jose Aldo might pop back off off a wrestling takedown. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. He'll meet you at the top with a, with your wizard, and he will throw you with it. Nurmagomedov, I'm telling you, man. Nurmagomedov, like when he was like, "Oh, I might not come back," I was like, "No, 
This can't happen. There's no one like him. When it comes to takedowns, there is no one like him. There is no, he is completely peerless in that regard. Uh, and he can just switch up top to bottom. His scrambling is ridiculous um, because of so many options are open to him. And not just options, options with, you know, just the, the, the virtuosity he has with all of them, the ease with which he can switch between phases of takedowns and types of takedowns. I've just never seen anything like that in my whole life. Um, he is so good. He is so good in that department. But if there's a big knock on him and you have to acknowledge it, you know, you could say what you want about Pettis's takedown defense. I would pick Nurmagomedov to beat Pettis, but I would be a little bit nervous, man. The distance closing is just bang, bang, and then reach. Someone's going to catch him if he doesn't fix that. You know, it's just inevitable. Will they catch him and stop him? We'll see. But someone's going to catch him and put him on put him on his rear end once or twice if he doesn't work on that. That's a that's to me that is the Achilles heel of Nurmagomedov, and to a, and to a lesser, although in some ways larger extent. Um, some of these guys coming from Combat Samba who have so many skills, that's one little knock on them. They don't really work behind the jab. They don't work angles. They don't really do a lot of fainting. Um, they do just enough to get their hands on you when they need to. Um, how was the turkey sandwich? Turkey sandwich was excellent. Someone asked me what I had on it yesterday. I will tell you what I had. I had avocado, which I sliced myself because I picked my own avocados. Turkey, of course, on... Um, uh, shout outs to uh, Mike Dolce because I got it on his recommendation. The Ezekiel bread, which is phenomenal. Uh, I use this like muffaletta, like black olive. Uh, no, excuse me, not black olive. I'm sorry, green olive and like hot pepper, semi relish. Not sweet though, all spicy. Uh, had mushrooms and suero. If you never had suero, you are missing out. So there you go. Turkey sandwich is excellent. Don't ask me about Ronda Rossi's personal life again because I don't give an F. Uh, all right, overlooked fights with so much going on this week. Some fights may not get the attention they would normally receive. Which overlooked fight, uh, so at least one fight that is not the main or co-main event, are you really eager to watch and why? So here's what I'm going to do. It's a great question. Let's pick two fights on each of the three upcoming cards that I personally am kind of looking forward to a little bit that maybe aren't getting a whole lot of attention. So on the card tonight, a lot of different ways to go to. I don't expect any of you to care about him. I was a little bit dismissive of him early. I saw some flashes of brilliance in his last fight. I don't know where he's headed, but I really like the weight class he's in now. I think middleweight is good for him. Keep my eye on Antonio Carlos Jr. Boy, he has phenomenal jiu-jitsu, okay? Um, you know, there's a big to-do about the fact that Adolfo Vieira is going to come over to MMA. Boy, I'm being honest about that. I don't know how that's going to go for him. Uh, if he can take a punch and deliver a punch, that's great. And I think that some people who watch jiu-jitsu and watch Rodolfo Vieira might say, look, that's impossible. Like, why would you say that? Not only does he have great submissions, um, you know, he's got great uh, judo. If you've never known this, Rodolfo uh, Vieira has phenomenal takedowns in the gi. Um, but I don't know that that translates all that well to no gi for him. And, you know, look, he can be a movement passer when he needs to be a motion passer, you know, if you're really talking about what Adolfo Vieira does better than almost anyone, including Bushesha, his pressure passing is phenomenal. Pressure passing of the style that he has, I'm not sure that translates to MMA. I'm not sure that translates. All this is to say, Antonio Carlos Jr., man, he's got it all, bro. He can he can invert. He can do, he can do, and I mean, inverting that works um, when he needs to. He can 
do deep half to come out the side. You know, coming out on, uh, uh, down to middleweight has given him a mobility with his his jujitsu was already phenomenal. In the sense that his hips were just constantly on the move, mobility has really added to that. I mean, where he's going to go, I don't know. I'm not calling him a lucha prospect, but I when he jumped on the middleweight, I was like, I don't know how that's going to go. And he looked really good against someone he was supposed to beat. Kevin Casey, same thing. Just just saying, me personally, I'm keeping my eye on that a little bit. Um, and if I had to pick another one, of course, you know, it's got to be Aljamain Sterling versus Johnny Eduardo. Aljamain Sterling coming out um, yesterday at the press conference saying it's the last fight on his contract. That's interesting. And, you know, I disagree with my colleague, Chuck Mindenhall. Chuck, this one's out to you. Chuck saying, oh, that was a bad idea. It is never a bad idea to maximize your value. I could not possibly disagree more. I do not expect it to be as fruitful a search as it would for someone like Benson Henderson, former champion, could fight in two weight classes. Uh, Sterling, 26, ranked in the top 10 at bantamweight. But it is it is, it is is absolutely not true that the UFC wouldn't raise the level of what they were going to pay normally um, if Bellator came calling or World Series of Fighting. I don't take the, the idea that he's going to jump ship, especially World Series of Fighting, too seriously. But you never know where he might go with Bellator. The guy always says, I'm a numbers guy, I'm a numbers guy. Bellator gives him a tremendous offer. He decides at 30 he wants to do something else with his life. Then that's what he's going to do. I think the idea that, that him trying to work out his contract is a bad move, that this is only reserved for elder statesmen, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with that. I love you, Chuck, but I disagree with that. Okay, so then we go to the next night. So this is the Ultimate Fighter night. Uh, obviously, you know, look, I, I don't make any bones about it. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm being upfront and I am disclosing it at all times. You know, I consider Ryan Hall a friend. He has been to my house a number of times. I have trained with him uh, off, you know, I would not in any regular capacity, but, you know, roll with him all the way back to 2005, I think. Known him for a very long time. Um, so, you know, I'm biased in that regard. I really hope he does well. But you guys should know that, that my judgment is clouded when it comes to Ryan Hall. So if we're going to disregard that. Ryan LaFlair versus Mike Pierce is kind of interesting. I'm not sure how exciting that's going to be, but Mike Pierce ha- having been gone since the Husamar Paul Horace fight, Ryan LaFlair trying to get back on the horse after the Demian Maya. I think that was his last fight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if I am not mistaken, I believe that's correct. Yeah, the Demian Maya fight. That's been a while, too. Um, so, so I would certainly point to that. Everyone's going to point to Edson Barboza versus Tony Ferguson. I mean, that's just, you know. It's got A-plus written all over it. I'm just talking about ones that are under the radar a little bit. Um, you know, it's funny. Tetsuya Kawajiri's fighting. But, of course, um, Joe Lazan versus Evan Dunham. Wow. Phenomenal matchup that's going to be. So, I'm really excited about uh, that one as well. And then if we just go to UFC 194, i got to be honest, the prelim card for 194, not that awesome. Um, but there is still some things to take from it. Um, I don't care so much about favor versus signs. Um I don't. I don't really care about a lot of these. Uh, I do think Leonardo Santos versus Kevin Lee could be interesting. Kevin Lee, I feel like has a lot of ability and a bright future if he can find a way to put just a tick more pressure on guys um, and then see some finishing opportunities. He has a phenomenal athlete. I think he's a very smart guy. If you ever seen him on social media, I think he tries to think through intelligently his fights and put them on his terms. Um, and you know, look, he's he's a good fighter. I think he can be better. And I'm really kind of seeing if and when he'll turn that corner. So for me, that's kind of interesting. Obviously, the fight that I care about the most outside of the ones that everyone – look, the whole main card for 194 is great. The sleeper for me on that one is Holloway versus Stevens. I'm telling you, boy, Max Holloway will run up on you. I have a lot of respect for Max Holloway. I think he's a tremendous competitor. Um, and I really feel like some way or another they need to make that Conor McGregor rematch because 
you know, again, we'll see what happens with Connor and Jose on Saturday. Who knows? The world may explode. But um, I feel like those two have unfinished business, even though they're on, you know, their own paths at the moment. And then I guess last thing I'd say uh, for a prelim fight, maybe John McDessey versus Yancey Medeiros, um, two guys who kind of get after it, two different striking styles. McDessey contemplating retirement after getting his jaw broken. Uh, Medeiros certainly running into a number of um, his own challenges being finished in the UFC. So they've both got something to prove and they've got some skills to do it. So that should be fun as well. So when I asked this yesterday, I didn't have a whole lot to give you. I'll try and give you what I got today. Um, TriStar and Reebok sponsorship. Uh, number one, do you know any more details? No. Two, with Reebok going after specific MMA gyms, I think they also have Sarah Longo and they have, of course, um, SBG. Uh, could this be an early preview of a team-focused year two fight kits? Oh, I see. Like in the in other words, the next iteration of fight kits could they be team-focused? Um, yeah, but you know, if they do that, that's a mistake too. Which isn't to say that if they offered a team fight kit, that wouldn't be interesting because it would be. If the fight kits are to have any value, they have value by making the fighter the centerpiece of them. Not the UFC, not Reebok, not even the team. Those things are important and they should have a place, but if a fight kit is to truly have value, if it is to mean anything in this world, if it is to be successful, quite frankly, it has to be about the fighter. Not where the fighter is from necessarily, although that can be an important contributor, but what makes them tick? And if you're just trying to mass produce fight kits at scale, uh, I'm not really sure how accomplishable that mission is. Is that even a word, accomplishable? Uh, I'm not sure how um, doable or, or or really realistic such a uh, a mission is. To be to be quite frank, you know, it's a little bit easier to do, you know, a team of 50 guys, team of 50 guys, team of 30, 20 guys. You know, Golden State. Um, the Washington racist skins, whatever. Uh, it's a little bit easier that way than you just sort of like numerically assign things. But, you know, to your point, maybe they might do that, even the teams, the, the jerseys, and then individual names. That still, to me, doesn't quite get it right. People don't, people who are team members of Jackson Winkle John will cheer for Jackson Winkle John. And I'm sure that the team generally does have some fans, but that's, that's a little IFL ish to me. And I don't like it. It, it really, it, it, it's a very daunting task that Reebok is up against that, frankly, I think everyone should acknowledge, especially Reebok themselves. If you are going to do fight kits, you got to go one by one. This is not something you produce at scale unless, you know, you just make a generic kit that people can choose to wear. They don't want to wear anything else. But, you know, certainly with your top 10 guys and then all the way down, every one of those fight kits has to be about them, them, nobody else, at least nobody else up front. Um, but you both, uh, figuratively and, and, and quite literally. So I don't think that'd be a good idea, but who's to say they might not do it or they may do it a couple of weeks ago. GSP and the, uh, said the Reebok deal could keep him from coming back. If he says he is ready to come back to the UFC with a new TriStar sponsorship, make things messy for GSP. Yeah. I don't really know the situation with that. What kind of arrangement he has with either affliction or under armor that could complicate these factors. So we'll have to wait and see. Let me get a sip of this old green liquid. Uh, Luke, this year, Joe Rogan has been very vocal about his dislikes relating to the UFC. Things like Reebok, CTE, 
chronic traumatic encephalopathy, Jesus, encephalopathy, encephalopathy. There we go. And fighter treatment are his main gripes. Seeing as he is possibly leaving the UFC, is very wealthy and influential in the sport, and is outspoken advocate of the fighters. Do you see any chance of him helping to organize the fighters? Zero, none, nada, not at all. Rogan might speak his mind because he's an independent guy, but I also feel like he genuinely likes Dana White. He likes the Fertitas. I think he roots for their success. I don't think he roots, you know, for the success at the expense of fighters. Um, but you know, his life was bettered by them. He has a very close relationship with them. Um, to go and do something like that seems to me uh, entirely antithetical to his uh, priorities and values. Which isn't to say he would poo-poo someone else doing it. Just that that's not the appropriate role for him. Uh, someone says, it is time to seriously examine the UFC's treatment of stars. Okay, what do you mean? Did you see Aldo's camp's recent comments about the UFC trying to push him to fight injured? Yes, I did. It seems that they knew what was really going on the whole time, but were trying to throw up a smokescreen to get him through the commission exams. The same commission that let Anderson Silva and Nick Diaz fight when both were on some form of drug, and the commission knew beforehand. So you can bet your life if Aldo would have got through the commission exams, they had to bend over backwards to make it happen. I know that the UFC will issue another half-ass denial like they did with GSP and Jones, knowing that no one will believe them any more than the previous occasions. Frankly, I find all three situations disgusting. Should something be done here? Um, it's an interesting question. I think what I would say is the idea that a promoter, any promoter, tried to get a f- guy to fight at their limit is entirely unsurprising. That to me seems very standard practice um, for any kind of successful promoter. They put a ton of money into this and they're going to have a priority where if you can get out there and make it happen, even if it's not in your best interest, you know, maybe you should. I think you go back and you look at the Cain Velasquez versus Junior Dos Santos fight. Um, you know, the word on the street was that those guys were, you know, um, badly injured, but I think under a lot of pressure one way or the other. Um, either through the promotion or through the event itself or through their own desire to get out there or a combination of all three um, to make it happen. And you saw that, you know, Cain Velasquez just wasn't himself and neither was Junior DeSantos, but really Cain suffered. Uh, I think a lot of guys learned from that. I think a lot of guys saw that and said, you know, there's just no way I'm going to do that. But I, I'm, you know, you can say it's gross if you want. Um, to me, I'll just never expect a promoter to do anything but that. A promoter's job, if they're going to do it correctly at a high level, just involves some work that I personally do not have the constitution for. Um, so I wouldn't make a good promoter. Um, but it's got to get done. You know, that, If you were running the UFC, you, would, you just would. You would want someone who would kind of lean on guys um, to get out there. That doesn't make it okay, but I, I just, I'm sort of at ease with their position to an extent on that. I don't support it, but I, I don't, um, in the history of combat sports, man, this is very minor in terms of what promoters have, you know, encouraged their athletes are promoting to do. So there's that. Um, as far as the commission goes, you know, I mean, Nevada is just, I don't take them seriously anymore. Uh, not that I ever did, but I certainly do not now. Um, should something be done here is your question. I'm not sure. Something was done. Aldo denied it. Um, you know, and then someone in his camp in this particular case, his wife spoke out about it. Seems to me that's the appropriate response here. I don't know that what 
that the promoter did is in any way kind of actionable from a legal perspective. Uh, you know, they were trying to create an environment of pressure, which again, I'm not here to support, but that's what promoters do. Um, the key to all of this, in my judgment, is the fighters asserting their power. A lot will get fixed if you do that. <laughs> a lot. And that's exactly what Jose Aldo did. Mm, sorry, not going to fight. And y'all can say whatever you want, and you can trot out all kinds of negative responses. And and But if you do that, I'm going to call you out for it. Someone in my camp's going to call you out for it. We're going to make it public. It's going to be no. Assert yourself. You know, they're asserting themselves. Promotion is going to assert themselves. You assert yourself, you know, and, and, uh, the media will, will cover that, you know, and that will be known, we'll make a public record. And then other fighters will learn from that. So you ask what should be done. Who's to do anything except the people involved in this particular circumstance. I'm not sure there's any other, um, for lack of a better description, jurisdiction here, but if the fighters speak out, boy, you can see it has a pretty big effect. Does it not? And if the fighters speak out in unison, imagine how big that would be. Oof. Brock Lesnar effect on UFC 194. Back in the Brock Lesnar era, era uh, my colleague Ariel would often mention that whenever Lesnar fought, all other fighters in the card seemed to step up their game. We saw something similar at UFC 189 when almost every fight on the main card was spectacular. Do you think there's anything to the theory that the heightened atmosphere of a high-profile fight with big names like Conor McGregor could cause other fighters to perform better? Do you think we'll see the same thing at um, UFC 194? Boy, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I don't deny that there is something observable happening. In other words, when Brock Lesnar was on those cards, there just was magic in the air. But I really don't know if that's a function of um, guys doing more than they normally would have versus you happen to get guys on cards in matchups in ways that organically made them do more. I think that's probably um, a better argument, especially in the case of UFC 100. You know, there was just, you know, there was a ton of pressure. I don't think people were trying to follow Lesnar's lead exactly, but the grandeur of it all, and those guys were not an insignificant fight, especially the top three. And then, of course, Lesnar fought on other cards as well. But you get the idea. Like, there was just momentum generally that was pushing already great guys in compelling matchups on big moments to do the things they needed to do. I think those things kind of carry themselves. There's a, there's a natural uh, current uh, in that regard. And so I think for 194, you will see that, you know, with the third day of three fight cards, um, you know, happening in the way that it is, the biggest, most anticipated fight of the year happening here uh, um, is the crown jewel. The rest of the main card is already being called the greatest main card in UFC history, if not MMA history. The guys who got picked on there know, they clearly understand there is some significance to who they're facing and why and where. And so the matchups are already huge. You're already getting guys capable of greatness and you're putting them all together. There's just a general, um, there's a general push, I think, uh, both uh, uh, organically um, and because you put so much quality on, you can't help but notice the difference. But whether or not there is some kind of, you know, I want to show this guy up or I want to follow that guy's lead, um, I don't know that there's that. I just think if you take extraordinarily talented guys and you put brutal tests in front of them, in front of an incredible stage, uh, when the lights go on, man, there's just they're, they're they're just different people. You know, they're just totally different people. 
Kyle Dake, man, was one of these guys. And I remember this vividly. I think he was either before or after he beat David Taylor. Um, I guess it was the last time he competed in college. I think that's right, right? If I'm not mistaken. In any case, uh, and I remember he said something that, like, I never forgot. And a lot of guys have said it, but, like, the way he said it really caught my attention. Kyle Dake, of course, you know, um, first guy in NCAA history wrestling to win four national titles in four different weight classes, which is, like, you even think about it, like, bonkers. But, okay. Um, ESPN interviewed him. And they uh, not on print, on video. And they asked him, you know, God, like, because remember the way wrestling used to work was they would start with the lowest weight class and then work all the way up to heavy, all the way up to heavyweights. And that was the first year they said, no, wait a second. We got something special between Dake and Taylor here. Let's put that at the end and then we'll have the weight classes wrap around. So the event ends on um, their, their weight class. And, uh, and man, I remember they... ESPN asked him and they go, you know, don't you get nervous with the, with the bright lights and like when it's go time against your very toughest competition. And he literally chuckled. He was like, no, like that's the moment I, I am the, I am the most interested. That's the moment I am the most engaged. And I'm paraphrasing here. That's the moment that like I can truly show who my, who I am. And I think that's what I mean. You take someone like Kyle Dake and you put him on the last wrestling match of his career where the NCAA rearranged the order of the weight classes to make sure your match against another kid who is a fun, I mean, a monster in his own right, David Taylor. David Taylor, who had arguably more hype uh, up until that season than Kyle Dake. And you you put him in this bout on e- or this match on ESPN, and he just, like, this to him is Nirvana. This to him is like, yes, like, that's what I'm talking about. You just, you take special guys like that, and you put them in the toughest challenge, and you put under the brightest lights, and you just watch magic happen, man. That's kind of what it is. And if you put them all together, guys like that, all together on a card, you know, it just it feels like everyone's trying to one up another. And maybe on some subconscious level, there is. I I I feel it's much more simple. There are guys in this world who are incredibly, and ladies too, of course, who are incredibly, incredibly special. And you put their backs against the wall, and you watch a dog come out of them, man. Uh, and, and that's what you get. Someone like Kyle Dake or Chris Weidman or Luke Rockhold or whoever the case may be. Uh, the gut punch of UFC 193. I get the feeling that the UFC felt Rousey's victory was a given. But her losing and the fashion of her losing has shocked the world. Frankly, the promotion of UFC 194 has felt very muted considering this was supposed to be the greatest fight of all time. Even McGregor on the eve of his biggest fight seems way less bombastic than usual. Meanwhile, the crazy betting lines have closed up. Has the Rousey loss knocked the wind out of the UFC's sails? Uh, will it negatively affect the buy rate uh, of UFC 194? Boy, I couldn't disagree with this more. Uh, I will certainly grant you that McGregor and Aldo kind of seem over the promotion of this fight, which is entirely understandable. Um, but you are tragically mistaken if you think that, number one, the UFC hasn't promoted this properly, even in the second act that it had to. Um, you are entirely mistaken that the audience is in any way um, uh, down on this or not anticipating something. This is just the calm before the storm. The storm starts to hit off tonight. 
Um, they're going to be running ads like crazy on this. There's going to be, there's been so much media about this. There's so much media in attendance, all three nights sold out. You're just not feeling it yet. And, and you, people are saying, well, they didn't do as much to promote it. Dude, they held a world tour. You want them to hold another world tour for what they already held one. It's, it's just, it's just, I don't understand what your argument is. They've been doing, I'm talking millions of dollars in all manner of paid advertisements they have been as as they have tried to dress up this weekend as big as they possibly could you're saying they didn't promote ufc 194 yes they did they put two fight cards in front of it and made it the crown jewel on a saturday night all for a giant festive atmosphere for fight fans what on earth are you talking about this is just fundamentally not true you guys know i will blast the ufc early and often for all manner of things I think they do wrong. I feel like the criticisms that they did not promote UFC 194 are just absurd. They are totally absurd. In fact, if UFC 194 illustrates anything, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I think in 2011, if you think about what the UFC could do in 2011, let's say six months into that Fox deal, or let's say 2012 or whatever, and what they can do now you got to give the UFC some credit. It's not that they people say, oh, well, they figured this out, they figured that out. Well, well, well yes, th- those things are true. They got better. They got better as promoters. This is a very, very capable outfit when they want to be. Um, or, you know, especially when they get a little bit of wind at their back when they haven't had that many injuries for all three cards. People saying they didn't promote 194, it just is, it's just laughable to me. That you didn't see everything all in your face all at once the last couple of weeks. Okay, maybe there's an argument to be made there. But so what? It's irrelevant. People already wanted to see it. They already built the interest. They got the people here. And they built a kingdom around the 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 castle that is UFC 194. They terraformed the land to make it nothing but UFC territory. And people got the balls to say they haven't promoted 194. They promoted 194 like like magicians man i mean you, you if you have if you have anything but praise for how they've done this i don't know what planet you're li- i truly do not know what planet you are living on this is a master stroke by the ultimate fighting championship this is something that literally no other promotion from the world tour to the availability of media to the to the innumerable amounts of digital assets they had to produce the amount of uh, advertising money they have poured into this to the structure and architecture of a giant UFC weekend. I mean, I mean, what more do you want them to do? Have Aldo and McGregor go house to house fighting for fans? <laughs> I mean, this is to me, I, I, you have to be completely spoiled to an alarming degree to think that UFC 194 was not promoted properly. This is going to do gang busters i'm already doing radio interviews out in town about it and that never happens this early out people are incredibly incredibly excited for this there's just no denying it and the ufc laid all that groundwork what you want to do is just have a hammer hit you over the head every day about aldo mcgregor that's not how promotion works man and frankly you know look they've devoted this enormous amount of resources to it even those are finite they can't just you know spend gobs of money again and put and frankly put aldo mcgregor through just more madness they had those assets in they reused them and repackaged them and repurposed them in some cases um for ufc 194 and it worked and it will work it is a guaranteed lock it's going to work i don't know what's going to sell on pay-per-views but i would be surprised if it doesn't do a million not guaranteeing it'll do a million but i would be surprised if it doesn't or more 
this is this is astronomically high. And they built a card around it, and then two other fight cards. There are there are innumerable criticisms to make of the UFC. I don't like the Reebok program at all. I can't wait until fighters assert themselves so that there can be equitable balance of power between both independent contractors and management. And until that day, fighters are going to be underpaid and they're not going to be treated properly. This is, to me, facts of the case. But when it comes to being an adept promoter for UFC 194 and doing everything they have to do around it to make it a success, it is a 100% grand effing slam. End of argument. Who on earth could even even attempt to match this? Chris Weidman and other flavorless champions. This is taken from a quote by Luke Rockhold. Uh, I saw this. Weidman is not only the champion who could be characterized as such. Demetrius Johnson is off the same mold too, so probably his home and Verdum and Lawler aren't that far off. They're all nice people, probably very loyal friends and training partners, but fail to sell. With that said... GSP was also a nice guy. He didn't get into feuds except with Diaz, and he had a little one brewing with Hughes for a while. Uh, and, and once he had the belt, he had the dullest fighting style possible, the type of style that with casuals would usually point to as a reason why they don't watch any more MMA. Yet he sold more inconsistently than anyone. Was it just because he had a country behind him? What should be done about these champions from a promotional standpoint? And what should champions like Dillashaw and Rafael Dos Anjos do to prevent themselves from being viewed this way? So a couple of things. Number one, the, having the country behind him cannot be undersold. If you can galvanize a population based on a shared identity, uh, you can do a lot of things with it, you know, in, in any walk of life, really. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and literary giant from Colombia, um, um, you know, uh, Roberto Duran, um, any number of uh, Latino boxers or whatever you guys know. I mean, you just, just name something. There's any number of ways to go with this. Um, Latino, European, Asian, African, whatever. Um, so one is certainly that. Two, I think what a lot of people are forgetting is if you watch GSP early, you know, the Shirk, Huron, even the Carl Parisian debut, um, and you can go on and on from there. I mentioned, I bring it up all the time, the Frank Trigg fight, whatever. Just keep going. Hughes, blah, blah, blah. GSP used to fight balls out, man. In fact, he won the title by, you know, head kick knockout uh, or, you know, uh, claimed it from Hughes. You know, remember that? I mean, he used to fight crazy. What, you know, what you saw in the latter stage of his career was like, uh, I don't want to keep doing this exactly. But early on, he wasn't just this Canadian champion, you know, uh, or this Canadian prospect. He was also this guy who would like, you know, GSP would put knuckles to chin and early and often and it would be phenomenal. So there was that as well. And third, you know, look, he had a good look, man. He was easy to market. You know, so you have this young, built like a Greek god, uh, Canadian, speaks French, speaks English. English was broken, but, you know, he could get by, especially after a couple of years working working through it. Um, was a company man. Um, he had a lot of things going for him. So the fact that he was a, a compliant independent contractor early, the fact that he had an easy-to-market look, the fact that he had a galvanizing ability to rally Canadians, uh, and the fact that he was so damn good and rising to the ranks so damn fast, it just created for a runaway train. Now, and you know, the one who fought Nick Diaz uh, at the end, yeah, okay, he was, you know, playing it safe. Um, and the one who fought, I thought the one who, to me, the lowest performance, not including a loss, was GSP's fight against Dan Hardy. I, I think the world of Dan Hardy, I truly do. But I went back and wrote about that fight. That fight to me was not just risk averse. It was unnecessarily risk averse in ways that were like bizarre in its risk aversion. 
but uh, that came later, man. That, that that wasn't that wasn't the guy who, um, you know, who 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 everything was in motion for people to hop on the bandwagon. But by the time they did, he was making overtures towards a more responsible way of fighting. Someone's asking about Aljamain. Uh, I kind of already addressed that. Let me go to Twitter here real quick, if I may. Um, someone's saying, uh, I, I, I got a, a message here from another journalist. I don't know if he wants me to say his name or not, so I won't, just to be on the safe side. But he says, just turned into your chat, just tweeted about it. UFC 194 already has more bar and restaurant pay-per-view sales than UFC 193. So there's your argument, blown to pieces. Uh, let's see. Do you think, well, what? Oh, do you think you'll see a weight issue without another IVs or band? I'm going to think positively and say no, but we'll see. Why is Poirier versus Duffy no longer listed uh, for UFC 195 on the official site? I'm told that's just an error that it's still on 195. Does Tony Ferguson get the winner of Dos Anjos versus Cerrone if he finishes Barboza? He might. He really might. Uh, good question, Luke. Who benefits from a bigger cage and why? Aldo or McGregor? Aldo. He's going to be the one who I suspect will need more room to move, especially early. True or false? Uh, the three fights on the UFC 194 Fight Pass are the best ever. False. They're not good at all. JDS believes Kane will defeat Verdum in the rematch. Thoughts? He is... Okay, let me say this. It's funny that you asked that. I asked a bunch of pro fighters off the record who they predict in the rematch. JDS is the first one I've ever heard pick Kane. Virtually to a number, they all picked Verdum. Even with that, I was like, even with the ring rust that you saw and the altitude, they were like, he's just better. Verdun's just better. I swear to God. This must have been six or seven of them. Uh, Luke, did you intentionally dress like an Irish flag today, or was it a subconscious thing? Uh, no, this is actually Thomas Pink, which is British, so in your face. Uh, why does Dana White constantly dismiss Holmes' performance by making excuses for Rousey? I don't know that he does... I don't know that he's playing it down. Let me just talk about this rematch that they, they want to do for UFC 200. Will someone please explain the logic of this to me? I do. I mean, what is happening? Yes, of course, makes a billion dollars. I get it. There, there is a piece of information that is missing to this logic that I need in order to understand why they are aggressive uh, in trying to make that fight because otherwise it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, wow. I, I don't understand at all. Uh, if she gets starts twice, what on earth do you do with her? Ronda Rousey. And getting starts twice is in no way far-fetched. By the way, is she even going to be ready for UFC 200? Here you go again. Another promoter putting pressure on fighters to like meet their own timelines. I would highly encourage Rousey. If she's ready, take it. If you're not ready, don't take something you're not ready for. Because that would be just compiling um, error upon error. Boy, that is a really it is shocking to me. That they're so adamant about that. But there must be some piece of information that we don't have. 
Can you talk about uh, Chael Sonnen's comments regarding Connor and how he is preparing for a loss? Yeah, you know, he, he mentioned that too about Aldo, that these guys have both sort of issued cryptic statements, that they're not, by the language they've used and their body language that he says is visible to him, they just don't have the same kind of enthusiasm they would if they truly, truly felt like um, they were going to win. And that might be true, but, uh, you know, who's to say he's wrong? We don't know. To me, the more likely theory is that um, these guys know they, they, whatever else they say in public, they know that they have a uh, extraordinary task ahead of them. And I think they're, it's a long week. It's a bigger week than they probably both ever had. And they're trying to just manage everything in a way where they show just enough, but keep it calm and easygoing, get through the process, make the weight because there is no IV, um, and then devote your energy to 194 on Saturday night. You've done all the promotion you can already do. You've said all the things you can already say. What could there possibly be left to say? Keep it calm. As Jim Zorn would say, staying positive, acting medium, um, and go from there. I, I, that, to me, seems a little more likely. But look, is Chael Sonnen wrong? No. And in fact, what he said was, like, I've been doing combat sports for God knows how long. I know what guys look like. I've seen the body language a thousand times. Both of these guys have a little bit of concern about a loss. He could well be right. He could very well be right. How much of a factor will this wave of momentum Connor's riding be? So I don't know that if you just talk about it in some general sense, like wave of momentum, it doesn't mean anything. But I thought that um, Brian Stan made some interesting comments to Ariel on the MMA Hour when he was on either last week or two weeks ago. And those comments were, you know, he was talking about the home versus Rossi rematch or the home versus Rossi fight. And he was trying to say the best time for a fighter to get a title shot um, or defend a title, depending on the you know where they're at in the arc of their career, is when a number of factors are going right. You're on a win streak, you know, um, um, whatever the case may be. But the thing he pointed, there's a number of factors, but I just want to focus in on one. And the one was you have a strong, clear direct to you, cater to you, helpful to you, understands your needs, support system. And he said that if you looked at the support system that Rousey had versus home, among a number of other factors, of course, but you know, he, I don't want to, I want to take Stan's words out of context here. He was making a variety of points, but again, one of the points was that if you looked at Holly's support system from the town of Albuquerque to her family being there to having a long-standing relationship with her coach, having been with uh, 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 Mike Winklejohn for years and years and years and having seen her grown up and everyone catering to her needs and understanding what's, what it's all about, um, being on the same wavelength, all the coaches working together, that was just an incredible opportunity for her. And that's, again, in his mind, one of the ingredients, among others, that contributed to his her success. If you look at Conor McGregor, when you say wave of momentum, winning before he came in here is important, of course, as a condition to get the fight. But what I'm more concerned about is the way in which he has structured his life outside of it. Um, seems to me, and we don't know this for a fact. You know, we're not we don't have access to him in that kind of way. It does seem to me that one of the keys to Conor McGregor's success and Jose Aldo too, the tremendous bond he has with his teammates, the tremendous bond he has with his coaches, coaches who understand him, coaches who uh, recognize his abilities, his limitations, his needs, um, a family who are there to support him, a country who is sending him positive vibes. He has an incredible support system heading into this fight. And, of course, to that point, 
So does Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo, a little more muted of a personality. You may not recognize some of those things day to day, but he has that as well. So this is what I mean again when I talk about this fight. Like, I, I, I really don't know who's going to win, but I will tell you what, man. I am expecting greatness on Saturday night. We talked about it before. What about the ring rust with Aldo? What about the two camps back-to-back that he enjoyed? The two camps back-to-back that Conor McGregor enjoyed? What about the fact that Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor have guys who have known them since they were both dirt poor here to support them? Uh, Andre Pettineris, and then in the case of of, of McGregor, uh, John Cavanaugh. Man, what what an epic clash of titans we have going on here. Um, incredible, incredible, truly incredible. Guys who have no excuse, guys who have, I'm sure, aches and pains, but to our knowledge, no real injury. Guys who have promoted the hell out of this fight, who have incredible support structures, the greatest featherweight versus the greatest hype, maybe, you know, the next big thing we'll see on Saturday night. This is this is tremendous. This is truly tremendous. This is a moment in time that you better appreciate because these just don't happen very often. And frankly, I, I don't know when the next one will. I don't mean a million-dollar pay-per-view buy rate. Um, you know, we can find ways to find that happening again, especially when John Jones returns and, and all kinds of other things happen. But but this kind of situation where you not only have promotional force um, riding another wave of sporting legitimacy, right? This fight has all the, all the bad blood you could want. It has everything that a technique lover would want. And the two guys are entering this with with excellent preparation and the support systems in place that will push them to greatness. It is it is uh, a remarkable remarkable thing to see. You know, it's like uh, how often does Haley's comic come by? Like every seventy five years or something to that effect. Um, <laughs> this is the Haley's comet of MMA. Is Dana being unfair to Holm, making her wait for Ronda? Did the stream go down? Nope, stream's good. Um, yes, I think so. Holm wants to stay active. She wants to get out there and compete. You're going to make her wait for somebody who says she can't eat an apple for up to three months? I don't know if I like that too much. And then Dana White dismissing her manager, being like, yeah, we care what he says. If I'm home, I'm like, just full stop. I'm not doing it. What are you going to do, strip me? You're going to take my belt? Take my belt. Fine, I don't care. Cut me. You know, what are you going to do? You're not going to make the home versus Rossi rematch. You're going to have to eventually make it. But I don't want to fight her unless I get what I want. Or take the fight that you don't want to take, but then you just get a new contract, get paid, you know. Like it's going, I, w- I wouldn't just take it lying down. You have way too much going for you. You're the champion. You know, you clown Rousey. Ball's in your court a little bit here. And, of course, you know, I understand why the promoter would publicly say things like that. He's trying to position himself, you know, for private negotiations publicly. But, uh Holmes got some. Holmes got some. Oh, here someone says uh, Thomas Pink was set up in London by Irish brothers. So can we call this a draw? Deal. Um, well, let's get a couple more of these questions in here before the live chat expires. Algerman stolen free market. We talked about. Um, Glory 26. Luke, have you watched Glory 26? I did. Um, is Rico Verhoeven the king of kickboxing? He certainly is. He looked phenomenal. Let me say something real quickly about Glory 26. Uh, again, I don't work for them anymore. Um, I thought they looked excellent on ESPN. I thought it had a wonderful feel to it. Um, I can't say this with direct certainty, but I have a feeling that if you looked at the better Glory shows the vast majority of them were in Europe. 
they they just do better shows in Europe, in my judgment. I'm not saying they do bad shows in the United States. In fact, I was there for my first in-person glory show was Glory 10. This is where um, Joe Schilling, in an extra round, uh, beat Artem... Um, God, I got Artem Lobov on the head. Uh, Artem... Um, Jesus. I can see his face in my head. Artem Levin. Be Artem Levin um, an extra round in, you know, this is in Ontario, California, so it was close to LA. So, um, you know, tons of his supporters were out there. It was phenomenal, man. It was one of the best sporting atmospheres I've ever been at. Truly. It was, it was crazy. Um, so they do have, they do put on great shows, you know, in the United States. Um, and I didn't see the show personally in Japan. I saw it on, you know, TV or whatever, but you know, I was there for the one in Croatia and it was sold out. There was a buzz in town. Um, you know, you just look at the when they went to Milan and now the Netherlands and some of the shows in London. And I don't know that they were cost efficient. I don't. I don't know how that worked. I'm just saying, the European audience gets it more, and it just works. It feel. I feel like in the United States, Glory has to adjust who they book and don't to appease American audiences. You know, and this this is a product that's ready to go on TV. In in Europe, they can go. I mean. They can book their cards. They can go to their cities, and they can have guys that everyone knows. At least you know enough people know, or whatever. Um, and it just has a certain feel and rhythm to it all. In the United States, it just feels like a constant learning process. I, I understand why they want to be here. It makes sense. It's a big, huge market. And again, the shows here are good. I'm not I'm not bashing them in that way, but I really feel like the best shows they do are are, are in Europe. Uh, let's end on a true false. True false. Van Zant and Northcutt both lose tonight. False. Turning pro so young is a career-limiting move. False. I think your career is about the same no matter what. You just start it early. It ends earlier. Competing in the UFC so young is a career-limiting move. Potentially, yes. True. I'll say true. Faber has one more title run in him. Title run? I mean, he may get a title shot. Title run? No. False. If McGregor loses, he's main eventing prelim cards by 2017. False. Winner of Maya versus Nelson is a legit title threat at welterweight in 2016. Uh, true. Rousey not switching camps and taking immediate rematch with Holm means she's done. Uh, no, false. Doesn't mean she's done, but boy, is that a risky move. It's not that Rousey versus Holm 2 right away automatically precludes you from enjoying major rewards. If if Rousey goes in there and win, uh, wins, you, you are in a, a phenomenal position. It's just that you're courting disaster by doing it. And why you would court disaster unnecessarily, I, I do not know. All right, so here's how this is going to work. I'm going to close the show here. We're going to do this again tomorrow. So if you missed that last time and you missed this time of getting your question answered, I'm going to post tomorrow's chat post uh, on MMA Fighting around 9.15 a.m. East Coast time. Get your questions in. I will go through them. I will get to them. We have barely even talked about Edgar versus Mendez. There are so many fights we have still. Someone asked me why I'm just talking about Romero versus Jacare because y'all haven't asked me yet. So much stuff less, uh, left to get to. Plus, we'll, tomorrow we'll react to tonight's fights. Oh my God, what a what a big weekend! What a big what a big uh, event that we are being a part of here tomorrow, 1 p.m. Be back here. We'll do this all over again at SBN Luke Thomas on Twitter, Luke Thomas at SB Nation for email. And until tomorrow, stay frosty. <laughs>